Um, today is called Rebuild. I guess it could be entitled, and if you, um, <laughs> if you want a cheerful start to 2023, go and listen to my sermon from last week, um, <laughs> which in some ways begun by painting a very bleak picture of the nation and the state of the nation and the challenges that we face. I didn't do that for effect, and I am, uh, anyone who knows me knows that I'm an optimist by nature, uh, uh, but there's a kind of real prophetic heart in me, which is to see things as they truly are, and yet with God's eyes to declare things as they might be, I guess, in some ways, because God is a God of hope, and his people should be a people of hope, and though the challenges we face, we do need to begin with an understanding of the reality of the, those, the, those challenges and yet dare to believe that with God's help all things are possible. And so in some ways last week's talk and perhaps linking into this week's talk could have a subtitle of broken walls, broken hearts. Last week, if you remember, Nehemiah was kind of experienced and he had a revelation of all the things that were going on around him and he heard about Jerusalem and its broken walls and were introduced um, to, to Nehemiah as cupbearer to, uh, 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 no, uh, no, I'm doing it, thanks John. Artaxerxes, who was the king, the Persian king at the time. There's kind of no indication um, previously that, um, that Nehemiah had thought about giving up his exalted position. He had a real place of privilege, you know, even as an outsider, as an exile, he had a place of privilege, he had a position of power, he would have been no doubt relatively wealthy, um, he had opportunity and safety. There was no way, that, there was no indication that previously he had thought about kind of throwing off this exalted position in pursuing um, his fellow Jews back into the sort of insignificant, seemingly insignificant place of Jerusalem until this news reaches him and he's told by a brother of the brokenness of Jerusalem, the burnt walls, the devastation, the rubble, and something overwhelmingly hits him. And there's a sudden realization that God is calling him to a radical new way of thinking and a radical new way of being which wasn't just being broken by the news of the sadness of the devastation around him, but stirred him first into prayer and fasting and then into action. So we thought about that last week and we began to think about well, what might that look like. And today, in a sense, we begin that journey of looking at the rebuilding. Okay, what happened? There's some narrative in between that we're gonna come back to in further, further chapters about some of the challenges that come. So it's not following totally sequentially, but this is as best as I felt God was kind of calling us to go through the story. I would suggest it can only be a kind of Holy Spirit dynamic moment that can explain the determined purpose which completely overtakes Nehemiah to undertake this, this kind of, this, this whole project, if you like. It's so much more than a building project. Um, something happens to his heart it's a Holy Spirit moment that inspires him. God chases after his heart and overtakes him. And, and he gets this deep sense of identity and togetherness with his people and what God is calling him to. And that becomes evident in his prayer, in the way that he prays, in the way that he prays. And also, later on we'll see this, in the outstanding resilience that he has and incredible wisdom in the face of incredible opposition and persecution and challenge he has to know God, not just at the beginning when he gets the vision, but he has to know God with him when things start getting really tough and there are moments of real toughness. Because when God gives you a vision for something or a promise or calls you to something, <laughs> we, 
wouldn't it be lovely if that meant that the rest of the journey from that point forth would be glorious? Actually, many of us in this room can testify there is a moment of real exaltation as we hear God's voice, God's call, and you are obedient to it. And then often <laughs> comes the immediate challenge, persecution sometimes, perhaps financial challenge, emotional challenge. There are challenges. God is faithful on the way and holds us, and we know God with us. But often those challenges come and we'll be reflecting that. We have to have God journeying, not just at the beginning when we get the vision, but all the way through. That's why daily yielding to God and asking for his grace and his strength is so key. So, Nehemiah first answers this call, this heart move of God, this realization that God was calling him to do something. This vocation, and I would call it a vocation. You know, people often talk about becoming a church leader, like for myself as a vicar, as a vocation. But vocation is so much more than that. It's a call of God. It might be into the missionary field. Or it might be into the world of medicine. Or it might be into the world of teaching. We've got many teachers here. We've got many people who have been involved in medicine. It's a vocation. Or into the world of construction or building. Seeking. We've got architects. Many in this church who have gone on to, you know, we've got Nathan working in Burundi, seeking to do projects there in one of the poorest nations on earth. There are all sorts of vocations. Motherhood is a vocation, being called to serve and to model family life. And Nehemiah answers this, this call, this vocation, not with action. I am an activist. You know, I'm a doer. Anyone who knows me, I love doing things. I get a vision. I want to run ahead. But actually, Nehemiah is so much wiser, isn't he? What does he do? He prays, prays, and prays, and fasts. Before he does anything, he prays. Oh, my gosh, there's so much wisdom in that. For some four months, we're told. And I don't know about you, but many of us struggle with prayer, which is ridiculous because Mark so brilliantly earlier this um, week with the staff team kind of came and talked about prayer. And, and, and the reality is many of us struggle with prayer, and yet it should be the most natural thing, like breathing air. It, it's talking to our Father in heaven. And, and I, like, like Mark, I, I do have a, an ongoing relationship. All through the day, I'm talking with God, and I'm chatting, I'm, I'm, I'm reflecting, I'm trying to listen, and that's a great way of being. But... I do believe that God does call us to go into the secret room, close the door, and actually really pray actively, not just on the hoof, but actively pray, to pray concertedly, to pray together as well, which is why our Zoom prayer on a, on a, on a Monday night, you know what, that's really easy, between 7 and 7.30, we get together on Zoom, we just pray, we pray for the church, we pray for the nation, we pray for the things that stir us, maybe it's too easy, <laughs> But we need to do it. We need to start. And if you do nothing else, corporately, please come to that prep time. It's a great time to pray, to pray together as church, to pray in your life hubs. I know there's lots of prayer. I know we have prayer triplets here. If you're not praying with someone, talk to us. We'd love to kind of match you up. It's so key to find a friend or two to pray with. This is such a helpful thing. We need to pray. How eager am I to pray when I see something is in disrepair? When was the last time my heart really broke over something that kind of pushed me to pray and to fast? I was preaching on fasting. Do you remember when we were doing the spiritual disciplines just before Christmas and we had a whole session on fasting and the power of fasting? We need to be a people who pray and, yes, fast. You can go back and look at that sermon and hear what we were talking about and some of the practical suggestions we had. You might say, well, maybe he was just procrastinating. No, he wasn't. Prayer for those months, for that season, for that deep prayer was laying a foundation. We, up at Sue's house, we're building an extension on the house that she lives in up there. And um, we've had 
the first thing you put in that takes a lot of time and energy is the, is the foundation. And watching them dig this foundation with slight intrepidation, not knowing what was there, was really interesting. And they dug down and they hit bedrock. They hit um, limestone, which was really good news because they hit that and the, the, the kind of um, building uh, guy who comes out to kind of sign it off said, this is a great foundation to build on a meter down, solid bedrock, and they poured the, the concrete on Friday while it was freezing cold, which was a little bit worrying. But here's this foundation, and prayer is like this foundation. You know, the, you can do all you want making the stuff on the surface look, look pretty, but if you haven't got your foundation right, it's not going to last. Whereas if your foundation stands, everything will stand. And so he's praying. And do you notice what he prays? Nehemiah 1 verse 10, he prays for favor. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. He's talking about the king. I was cupbearer to the king. Favor, unexpected favor. You know, he prays for favor, not because he wants to kind of like shine, but because he wants God to open a door where humanly speaking, they may, it, there's no other way. He needs God's favor. And God is able to do outrageous things. And he can do that for you. Um, uh, I expect most of us here have got a British passport. I don't know how many of you ever read the words written in your passport. I kind of wave it at people and we go straight to the photo. It's quite interesting if you look at your passport, at the front, inside front cover, shall I tell you what mine says? It's already outdated in some ways because it says this. Her Britannic Majesty's Secretary of State requests and requires in the name of Her Majesty all those whom it concerns to allow the bearer to pass freely without let or hindrance and to afford the bearer such assistance and protection as may be necessary. The queen's given me rights to do stuff. I mean, the queen's dead, so now it's the king. But it still stands, that passport. Powerful words, aren't they, from royalty. Words that you're going to get assistance. Words that you, get, you should get free passage. There shouldn't be hindrance. Words with royal authority, words which seek to guarantee safe passage to any citizen on a journey abroad. And miraculously, after praying and fasting, that is exactly what happens to Nehemiah. By God's grace, Persian king Artaxerxes, put my teeth back in, does very much support Nehemiah's plans to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and gives Nehemiah's letters to guarantee his safety. And trust me, this really riles people who are in opposition we'll hear more about that in future weeks but he has this shield of protection he has he has a kind of open door which God is able to open that no one could have imagined happening I've seen that in people's lives I've seen people in job situations as we pray and as we fast suddenly a door opens that's unexpected or that there's favor that's poured on someone that suddenly they find themselves in a position of authority or position of kind of responsibility, or somehow there's suddenly a new door that opens, or whether applying to a uni, or applying for the right job, or in all sorts of ways, God is able to give favor. And not always in the way and from the places that you would expect, sometimes from the last places you'd expect. A Persian king, he finds favor. There's an open door, and Nehemiah enjoys a smooth and uneventful journey to Jerusalem. I just want to read a bit um, from chapter 2 verse 11. This is Nehemiah inspecting the walls. I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days I set out during the night with a few others. I've not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. 
By night I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal wall, uh, jackal well and the dung gates, examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. Verse 16, the officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we'll no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they said, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. This is, oh my gosh, there's so much in here. <laughs> we could preach on Nehemiah for months. But there's so much wisdom in him. See, he doesn't just kind of blurt out what he wants to do. He, he's prayed and he treasures it up in his heart like Mary did. You remember those words where she treasured them? Because this is precious what God said to him. And he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to kind of go off too quickly. And he doesn't want to tell the wrong people. And he doesn't want to say the wrong message. He wants to guard what God's put in his heart to really honor that, to really believe it. And at the right moment, begin to draw the right people into what God wants to do. And, and you see also, he, um, whistling. he also uh, very clever, very wonderfully shares testimony. That's the power of testimony, isn't it? He talks about how God has opened a door. That's why it's really, really good to share testimonies about what God is doing amongst us. Because it builds faith. Wow, a Persian king gave you letters? Wow, a Persian king gave you some authority and resources and has promised to be with you? Faith, testimony builds faith. But what's behind Nehemiah's motives for rebuilding this wall? Why are constructing the city walls so important to him? Nehemiah obviously is concerned for the city's welfare. That's without doubt. You know, without a wall, the city is vulnerable to attack. There's nothing to stop another nation from invading Judah's capital. And so self-defense requires a wall. There's a very practical thing here. But I don't think that's the real deal. I don't think that's what it's really, really about. This is not a, a building project for Nehemiah. There's a deeper, more primary motive, I believe, that lays, lays behind Nehemiah's desire to kind of for these construction plans. He tells us that his people face derision and disgrace because of the state of their capital city. But more seriously, more importantly to him, a dismantled wall brought dishonor to God, to his God who deserved all the glory. And you can imagine all the jeers of the nations around. What kind of God would allow his chosen people to live in such a ruined city. Their God can't be up to much cop if he can't even kind of get the walls rebuilt and their capital remains in ruin. It's Nehemiah's ambition, behind all that lays a desire for God to be glorified and honored, not to be dishonored, for God's honor to be elevated, for his name to be elevated. Because a derelict city didn't only bring disgrace to God's people, but it brought disgrace to God himself. And that's something Nehemiah couldn't bear. He couldn't bear his God, his glorious God, to be dishonored. So what can we learn from that? What can we learn from the book of Nehemiah for ourselves? I think it's less about the restoration of God's city. And in some ways, it's more about the restoration of God's people. Yes, they build the walls. And yes, that's wonderful. And yes, they restore it. But for me, the real power and the beauty of this story that we saw enacted so wonderfully by our Bob the Builders is that there was this incredible coming together of people. The most ludicrous bunch of people 
from the highest of the high, the nobles and the priests and the goldsmiths. And did you notice a perfumier called Francois? Um, John did say, I might just change all the names to Bob and Eric and Clive because I'm not going to struggle with these. But you did very well. We were with you. We were with you and glad we weren't you. Uh, I could feel that in the congregation. I'm so glad I wasn't asked to do this. <laughs> all these names. Why are those names there? Well, I, I think you said that at the beginning. They're there because they're beautiful. Because they were real people individuals who had jobs and careers and children and grandchildren and pets and arguments with their spouses and kids who would kind of go off to clubs late at night and come back and cause their parents to have heart attacks and people with debts and people who were rich and people who had nothing and they were just people like you and me a ragtag bunch of people most of which had very little hope that their city could ever be restored. And somehow God brings them together with a sense of faith and hope. And you know what? There is a God who's real and for us and with us. And they mattered to God so much that he put their name in the Bible. So thousands of years later, we're talking about them and naming them by name. I love that because they matter and you matter. Whoever you are, whatever your career, whatever your longing, whatever your dreams, whatever your history, whatever your current circumstances, God says, I want to use you. Not just on your own, but I want to use you along with others to help build my kingdom purposes. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I, and I hope we can begin to share in Nehemiah's, as we look at the book of Nehemiah, I hope we can begin to share in Nehemiah's passion for restoration, for God's kingdom to re be rebuilt, for his church to be restored and rebuilt. And our desire for that is not that we create a great place or a great building or, or a great name for ourselves, as sadly, historically, some churches have sought to do or some movements have sought to do, but that we seek that his people are restored so that he is glorified so that God is glorified, that people look at the church and go, wow. That we can honor the God who made us and who saved us. And for his people to be restored to a place of prayerfulness, fruitfulness, vision, and hunger for God, just like the people in this account were. People with vision, people that dared to believe that God was for them and could use them and that they had a part in God's plan. You know, for so long, the church has kind of modeled something of, well, there's a few experts at the front, the home group leaders, the church pastors, maybe the evangelists and kind of people who can preach. And, you know, they're the real experts and we'll gr gratefully give to the church in order to really mobilize their mission and support them. And me, well, I'll just kind of come along and enjoy that and I can perhaps make the coffees or it's just so wrong. That's not what the church of Christ is supposed to be. It's a mobilized army of people, each with gifts and callings as valuable and unique and wonderful and glorious as the other, where together we become the true church released to help transform the world. I think you know me well enough to know that kind of my constant message at the moment is church is not about putting on a service like this. This is, it's wonderful to gather as church. It's really important to gather as church. But if that's the sum total of what church has become, a weekly service event or midweek event, then we've lost what it truly means to be church. The church is supposed 
to bring transformation to a city, to a nation. He wants to mobilize us that we can be a people who are prayerful, fruitful, envisioned and hungry for God. So I believe that we should share Nehemiah's passion for God and for his purpose, not necessarily for city walls, but the spiritual equivalent of that. It might be for our city. Some of you here, some of us here are called to have a massive burden for the church in this city and for Bath. And that's good. And, and many of us, there's quite a few of us leaders gathering together to say, what would it look like for the, for the spiritual walls of this city to be restored? Well, I believe that is about us working with other churches. It's no good me building my church here while all around gates and walls are burned. We need to be united together. We need to be as one for the sake of this city. But we need to be passionate about his church, his bride. And anyone who knows me knows that I bang on about all the time about the bride. It's because I'm passionate about the bride of Christ, his people. We are part of that. It should be our everything, the bride, the church, his people. Ephesians 5.23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. I know there's a lot in that. I'm not going to preach on that verse tonight. But Christ is the head of the church. That's, it's strange, but I would suggest it's an extraordinary truth. Have you ever thought why we have marriage and what marriage is about? And why marriage has always been so funda fundamentally central to the, to the Jewish nation and following on the Christian culture and the Christian world? and our Christian sacramental way of thinking? Well, because marriage is God's idea. It always was. Marriage is a pi picture of a deeper underlying reality. The sacramental idea of marriage follows the pattern of an eternal cosmic marriage, the marriage between Jesus Christ and his bride. Jesus is coming back to marry the bride. Now, we might, we might not understand exactly what that means, but he's coming back for his bride. He's not coming back for lots of brides. He's coming back for one bride, his church, his glorious, wonderful church. That's why marriage is to be celebrated. That's why marriage is to be guarded and honored. That's why there's all sorts of battles around even the language that we use. Jesus is coming back for his bride and he's passionate about his bride. And if Jesus is passionate about his bride, we should be passionate about his bride. We should be passionate about the church in the city, the church in the nation. And we should be praying that the church would be restored where the gates have been burnt down, where the walls have crumbled, where there's division and disunity, where the people have lost hope and faith. This isn't about building big, beautiful churches that are shining. It's about building the people of God back to a place of confidence and togetherness, where together, we can preach the gospel to all nations, where together we can serve the needs in our city, the brokenness that is all around us, the lostness of people around us together as the church. Jesus, the bridegroom, is head of his church, the bride. And the church is called to submit to him, to yield to him. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 says, just as a body Though one has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. So we had, I'm going to close with these thoughts. We had this list of all these names. I've already alluded to them. All these glorious names, all these individuals. And, and they demonstrate this evident willingness 
to get involved, to unselfishly cooperate with those around them. And actually, for most of these individuals, where do they work on the wall? Well, they build the bit of wall that's right in front of them. They don't go into the other end of the city and do something that's in an area that's unfamiliar to them. They go to where God has called them, where they're, li they're living, where they're inhabiting that space. And that's the wall they build. And you know what? They're committed to doing that because if they look left and if they look right, they see their Christian brothers and sisters on either side doing the same. And yes, what's fascinating also in this account is there's a few grumpy people who don't want to get involved, who for whatever reason, whether it's selfishness or pride, who knows, but they choose not to. Rebellion, they choose to not be involved. But most people catch the vision. Most people get it. And there are some people who very unselfishly build not only their part of the wall, but they go and help on other parts as well. They do more than is required, more than is in front of them. They have the capacity, they have the time, they have the skill, they have the calling to go and serve elsewhere as well. And it's the togetherness that allows this wall to be built so quickly, so magnificently, so wonderfully. And the variety of involvement is really, really interesting. If you read the whole chapter, there are a few small who have said because of other reasons refuse to take part, but most know that actually that, that, that their part makes a difference and are willing to do it. This chapter, I think, stands as a permanent challenge to all of us, no matter what our own spheres of service, to be willing to engage in the bigger picture of God's call. So what has God called you to? It might not be church leadership. It might be into the world of engineering. It might be into the world of overseas mission. It might be into the world of environmental care, management might be uh, into business or finance or in this season of life maybe you're called to be a, a parent in a way that is engaging and so transformative that it brings life to future generations or a grandparent we're all called to different spheres what has god where has god called you where has god placed you in this season and what is he calling you to do there or is he calling you to somewhere new and are you willing to go because wherever god's put you he wants you to build and his grace is sufficient for you to be fruitful. But we're supposed to do it together. Amos 3.3, 3, I said last week this verse, do two walk together unless they've agreed to do so? I, I've been around church leadership for nearly 30 years in all different streams and denominations. And I've always seen the struggle between churches to work together and work and walk alongside one another. You have to choose to. And there are times of real challenge and there are times where it almost seems impossible. But there's something about the people of God coming together to serve God that is glorious. So Romans 15, 5 and 6 is really important. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity amongst yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a key part in that, isn't it? God who gives in encouragement and endurance, give you a spirit of unity. What does that mean? Well, as you follow Christ Jesus, he's the shepherd. He's the one we've got to be following. And that's why we've got to take God's word really seriously. Because I can't say I'm following Jesus if I'm not following his word. We've got to take God's word seriously. We've got to look at, Lord, what are you saying to us through this? How can we be obedient to your word so that together we can truly follow you? That's why we really encourage you know, Bible studies in, in the, I know in, in some of the life hubs, 
Um, interestingly, a couple of groups had chose to look at Nehemiah. I mean, it would make you think God's in action. By the way, those of you that aren't looking at Nehemiah in your group doesn't mean you haven't heard from God. But, that, you know, it's interesting, isn't it, that, that, that people are listening, saying, Lord, what do we look at now? Many of us here use um, kind of um, Lexio 365, is that what it's called? I'm never going to, yeah, yeah, which is the kind of beautiful daily Bible reading app produced by the 24-7 guys. It's absolutely fantastic. Bit of scripture, bit of reflection, bit of prayer. Whatever you use, whether it's kind of everyday readings or you're reading through the Bible in a year, I'd encourage you to get into God's word. It brings life. And if for at the moment for you it feels like it doesn't bring life, pray and ask God to help you. Because as we walk, we need to be walking in step with our brothers and sisters and in step with God's word. We need each other. So they said, let us arise and build. And they put their hands to the good work. Going forward, chapter 4, verse 6. So they built the wall and the whole wall was joined together at half its height. For the people had a mind, literally had a heart to work. I love that it talks about that guy, Hananiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section. And Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. Just kind of dropped in there. There's a guy who makes perfume. I don't know anything about him, but I can imagine him. I imagine he's a really nice guy. I'm guessing he smells really nice. Like Mark Nish, smells really nice most of the time. <laughs> Unlike Mark Nish, he's got lovely long wavy hair, I'm imagining creative, artistic, probably got soft hands, but he's got lovely clean nails. And here he is, stuck in his armpits in bits of rubble and cement and dust, hacking away, building with cement, you know, doing the last thing, the hardest work his hands have probably ever done. But that's why God, that's why Jesus puts his name in the Bible, Hananiah, this guy, remember him, because he's a perfumier, no experience probably in building <laughs> anything in his life, but he's there, and it's beautiful. What about you? God wants you, your name to be included in what he's building amongst us. And so they stand shoulder to shoulder, back to back. People who have probably never worked together, maybe neighbors that have never really even spoken to each other, suddenly they catch a glimpse of what God is doing amongst us, and they begin to get excited, and vision rises, and they want to join in with God's great adventure. I wonder what great adventure God is calling us to increasingly in these days. I believe he wants to build. In the days where everything is coming, being torn down and ripped down and the media is pulling everything down, including the church, I believe that God wants his true church to emerge radiant, a beautiful bride, transformed. Philippians 2.2. I'm going to finish with this. Being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. I wonder when perhaps we think of church, what do we think of? We've talked about this before, but when we think of the church being built, what do we think of? Well, we might think of this place. We kind of have plans, maybe, to transform this place, to use it as an apostolic center for the city. But I don't think it means that, really. We might think about buildings or rotors or facilitating services. What might it look like to build the true church in these days? The ecclesia, the people of God, for them to be built together. That's the word Jesus used when he said, I'll build my church. 
uses the word ecclesia, people. He's going to build his people into a body where he's the head. I wonder what that might look like. I think it's going to look like different things. I'm going to finish with this as a thought. Um, Grace couldn't be here today, but I'm going to interview her maybe next week. She is a teacher, like many guys here, and, and she's a new teacher at NQT. She's brilliant. She was leaving, helping to lead the service a few weeks back, and she's brilliant in so many ways. But she's got a really tough class. I mean, like, properly tough. I was a primary school teacher for a short time, and, man, she's got so many special needs kids and so few resources in the whole world of education. We know what that feels like, many of you here. And she's at the point of thinking, I don't know if I can carry on. She's part of the church, and I preached last week, and as she shared just kind of the challenges, she felt something rose up in me and said, it's not supposed to be like this. What can I do? <laughs> and I found myself saying to her, Grace, I'll come into your classroom one afternoon a week if I need to. Not because I'm brilliant, but because that's what it means to be church, doesn't it? I'll come and read with the kids. I'll do their spellings. I'll do anything. Because you're part of the church, and I believe that God's called her to serve in that area. Isn't that building together to see his kingdom come? Now, I know we can't all go and help Grace's class, although can you imagine what that would look like if it could? But what about you? Some of you have areas of challenge and we need to be standing with you. That's the church. Sometimes you need people to stand with you in prayer and fast because of the struggles you're facing over injustices or challenge or problems with your family. That's the church. And as we build together and rise together and strengthen one another together and understand that that's as important, more important than making sure the rotors are fulfilled, then maybe the true church begins to emerge because people will begin to say, why are they doing that? Well, because our desire is for God's kingdom come and for transformation to take place in the areas of education and welfare and health and finance and business and all these different areas where the church begins to serve and build and bring restoration and healing. Not with our own ideas, but with God's heartbeat and God's vision and with God's power. So I'd love to pray for us as we draw to a close. If you want to stand with me, You've possibly all got frostbite, so this will start getting some blood moving. And we invite James to come back up to finish with the last song. Song and a half. And um, I just want to invite us all. I'm, I guess I'm speaking to myself here. My constant prayer at the moment, moment is, Jesus, good shepherd, would you lead me? I mean, I guess that's a prayer we've hopefully prayed all of our Christian lives but in these days that we live in, I feel like it's increasingly my prayer. Jesus, head of the church, would you lead us? Those of us that have responsibility in shaping and kind of leading this thing called church, whatever stream, whatever denomination, whatever shape of church, we pray. I pray for leaders in this city. I pray for the guys down the hill at Whitcomb Baptist. I pray for the guys up the hill at Holy Trinity. Lord, across the city in Life Church and Freedom, for the Methodist Church in our city, for All Saints Western Tom and Mims, his wife, the new leaders up there, I pray for blessing on them. Father, I pray for the villages and Limply Stoke and Freshford and for Mike out there in the villages, I pray your blessing on them. Lord, I pray for all the home group leaders and all the pastoral leaders of the church in this city. And most importantly, I pray for your people in this city with all their gifts and personalities, Lord, for the goldsmiths and the perfumiers, for the builders and for the art artists, the creatives, 
and for the engineers. Lord, I pray that we would find our place and our purpose in your plans in these days. That like Esther, we might know that you've called us for such a time as this to serve your purpose and to see your church built. Lord, that you'd give us your vision and your heartbeat. Lord, we would grieve for the brokenness, but we, we would have eyes to imagine what cities rebuilt for your glory might look like. And as we pray and fast, that you'd give us strength to be obedient, to say yes to your ways. Lord, I pray the simple prayer. Lord, here I am, use me. Lord, I pray whatever sphere everyone in this room is in right now, I pray that our prayer could be, Lord, here I am, use me. Whatever my weaknesses and my past, whatever my gifts and strengths, I make myself available to your purpose. Help me to build, to be a kingdom builder so that your glorious bride might be made known and seen resplendent. By this, all may know that we know you and love you because we love one another and we seek to serve to see your kingdom come, we pray. Here I am, Lord. Use me. Here we are, Lord.